Well, good morning, everybody. Gail and I came to Daylight Church the first time uh, in January. We had come to the movies in December, and we saw your sign. And we've been going to the church where I grew up here in Louisville, and we thought, you know, let's go check this out. We love church plants, and we want to see what's going on. So we came the first week, and then during that next week, I said to Gail, where do you want to go to church this coming Sunday? And she said, let's go to Daybreak. I said, honey, 9 o'clock's early enough. I'm not going to any church called Daybreak, I'm telling you. So Daylight sounded a whole lot better. So we stuck with Daylight, and we've come every week that we've been in town since, and we love it here, and love what you're doing. I have loved HL and Kara and their family, and so I don't know how long we'll be here, but while we're here, thanks for letting us be a part of things, because we love, love, love what's going on. So, yeah, you know what? Absolutely. I love. I-, I met a friend of mine at a restaurant, oh, I don't know, it's been a year or two ago, and Josh walked into the restaurant, he took one look at me, and he said, you look more like Jesus every time I see you. Now, maybe that impresses you, maybe it doesn't. It probably would not impress you so much if you knew why he said it. Here's a picture of me from that summer, and uh, <laughs> dude had some hair going on at that time, and Josh said that I look like Jesus because every photograph we've ever seen of Jesus shows him with long hair. I'm guessing it was red. You may have other opinions. I don't know. But, but let's face it. If all it took to look like Jesus was long hair, every rock band from the 70s would have had three or four possibilities. Looking like Jesus is not about hair. It's not about a robe and sandals. It's not even about looking Middle Eastern. Looking like Jesus is about character. It's about things like humility and holiness and compassion. When's the last time that somebody said, you look more like Jesus every time I see you? When's the last time somebody said that to me for the right reasons? You know, Ken Geyer is one of my favorite authors, and Gail and I will once in a while read one of his books together, and we read one a while back called Shaped by the Cross. And he talked in that book about the process that God puts us through to make us look more like Jesus. And then to help grasp that whole concept, Geyer, in his book, wrote about the great artist Michelangelo. Michelangelo Buonarroti Simoni. You know, he's either got to be an Italian artist or in the mafia. Anyway, he was born in 1475 in Tuscany, Italy. He became, along with Leonardo da Vinci, the creative force behind the Italian Renaissance. He was, he was just an amazing guy. He was the chief architect for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I believe it's the largest church building in the world. This guy was a painter. He was a sculptor. He was a poet. He painted the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. I once painted the ceiling in our bathroom. I don't have a picture of that to show you. I'm sorry. Michelangelo may very well have been the greatest artist of all time. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that all men are created equal and then I hear about a guy like Michelangelo, I start to wonder. I mean, this guy was off the charts incredible. I think I could take him in basketball, but besides that, I don't think I got anything on this guy. But more than a great artist, Michelangelo was a devout believer in God. He wrote in a letter to his nephew, I work out of love for God. I put all of my hope in the Lord. Michelangelo would spend months in Carrera, Italy, where the marble for his statues was quarried. He would would choose the marble that he wanted, and and then the massive stone would be broken loose from this rock ledge. It would be transported on rollers down to a port loaded on a ship, sent to his studio in Rome, and there he would labor over it day and night for months, even years. And he explained that the figures that he envisioned, now don't miss this because this is really, really important, The figures that he sculpted were trapped 
inside the stone, and it was his job to chip away everything that was not part of them. He once said, I saw the angel in the marble, and then I carved until I set him free. When he was 23 years old, think about that, 23 years old, Michelangelo was, con was commissioned to sculpt the Pieta. It's likely his greatest work, one of the greatest statues, perhaps the greatest statue of all time. My family got to see the Pieta when we were in Rome back in 2003. It is awesome. The Pope gave Michelangelo one year to complete this statue. That's exactly what he did. Hardly taking time to eat or sleep, he spent all of his time in his studio, and he just sweated over and lived and breathed the Pieta for 12 months. When he was finished, he chiseled his name into Mary's sash. It's the only statue he ever signed. And Giorgio Vasari, a contemporary of Michelangelo, wrote this concerning the Pieta. He said, it would be impossible for any craftsman or sculptor, no matter how brilliant, ever to surpass the grace or design of this work. It is certainly a miracle that a formless block of stone could ever have been reduced to a perfection that nature is scarcely able to create in the flesh. I want you to notice that phrase, reduced to perfection. Michelangelo had to reduce the stone in order to make it perfect. Now keep that thought in the back of your mind. That's where the title for my message for today came from. Reduced to perfection. Using the Pieta as his example, Ken Geyer explained in his book that God shapes us much like a sculptor shapes a block of stone. Michelangelo removed all of the stone that was not Jesus. All of the stone that was not Mary so that he could set free the images that he envisioned there. And listen, that's what God does in us. He chisels us. He sculpts us carefully, intentionally, removing everything in us that is not Jesus so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. He reduces us to perfection. I want to read three different verses to you from different places in the New Testament that speak to this. These are verses you may have heard before. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that He planned for us long ago. God's masterpiece. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. He says, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's a lot to take in all at once. But for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, we are God's masterpiece. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. The old has gone and the new has come. And all that is true because of Jesus. However, like the statue that is locked inside the stone, Jesus in us has to be set free. It's what we saw in the video. All that is not Jesus has to be chiseled away. I think this is the most profound lesson that God has been teaching me over the past couple of years. That God's primary purpose in my life, in your life, is to chip away everything in us that's not of Jesus. See, there is a big difference between being a Christian and being conformed to the image of Christ. 
Ken Geyer said in his book that becoming a Christian is like when a sculptor selects a block of stone. Okay? It's like when that stone is removed from the mountain. It's isolated. That selection of the stone is only the beginning of the process. The statue is certainly not complete. Now understand, salvation is the beginning of the process. It's not the end. H.L. talked about this last week with the whole idea of transformation. Surrendering to Christ, being baptized into Christ, those are beginning steps. God sculpts us for the rest of our lives, chipping away everything that is not Jesus in us. I like to have a bottom line every time I preach. So if you miss everything else, at least there's something you can hang your hat on, you can take home with you. God chips away everything in us that's not Jesus. That's his goal in your life and in mine. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus often warned people to count the cost before surrendering to him. Jesus would say basically something like this, Make no mistake, if you let me, I will perfect you. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that's what you're in for. Nothing less than that. Now you have free will, he says. If you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification, whatever it costs me, he says, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. He says, this I can do, this I will do, but I will not do anything less. God chips away everything in us that is not Jesus. But how does he do that? What does he use? Not a hammer and a chisel, but tools that can get that job done. I think one of the most obvious tools that he uses is his word. I mean, think about it. Why are preachers always bugging you to read your Bible? Because the Bible is the primary way, or one of the primary ways, that we learn to become like Jesus. We have to know what Jesus is like if we want to know how to be like him. We have to know what God wants if we're going to be able to please him. I mean, if you had a treasure map, what would you do with it? Tuck it away in a drawer? Would you set it on your, your coffee table so people could admire it when they came in? Or maybe just pull it out when HL comes over? So, you know, he thinks you're really spiritual? No, no, no. If you had a treasure map, and you would, you would study it and pour over it, and, and you would know it backwards and forwards. Why? Because you want to find the treasure. You want to find what it's pointing toward. And the same goes for seeking God through his word. We devote ourselves to learning the Lord, what the Lord wants from us. My wife, Gail, is amazing. I mean, she, she is smart, and she's gifted, and just, I mean, she's wonderful, but she is technologically challenged, okay? I mean, I'm not nearly as sharp as most nine-year-olds today when it comes to technology, but I left her in the dust a long time ago. At our old house, we had a, a television, a Blu-ray player, a VCR for all the old Disney movies that we had, and, and surround sound, four remote controls. It, it, was, it, was, it was okay for me. I knew how to use them, but she did not see any reason to waste brain cells on stuff like that. And so she wanted to turn on the television. She wanted to know how to listen to a CD. She wanted to know how to watch a DVD or how to play a VHS tape. She just wanted to know how to do it. So a while back, I meticulously wrote out two pages of detailed instructions. She could look it up, which of the four goals that she had, and she could read right there exactly step-by-step step what to do. When I was finished, I left these plans for her. I was gone for the day. Her first venture into this new 
age of technology, and she called me on the phone in frustration. Forget watching a movie. She said, I can't even get the television to come on. I said, okay, tell me what you did. She said, I did exactly what you told me to do. I took the large remote control, I aimed at the television, and I pressed power, and nothing happened. And I thought, the large remote control. I don't remember writing that. The large remote control. And then it hit me that our television is the brand LG. And so she read in my instructions, LG remote control. She got the biggest one we had, pointed at the television, nothing happened. Sometimes written instructions are not as clear as one might think they should be. Sometimes it's user error. We could debate that all day long. But it begs the question, if there are written instructions and they're really, really important, one might want to spend time understanding what they have to say. And if God really does reveal himself to us in the Bible, and he does, and if God really does tell us in the Bible what he wants, and he did do that, then if we want to be like Jesus, we need to spend some time every day just reading some verses in the Bible. If you're not sure where to start, I mean, quick suggestion right here. Okay? Start with the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke in the New Testament. It's just a beautiful biography of the life of Jesus. And then you can read the sequel. Read Acts. It picks up right where Luke leaves off. It's written by Luke, and it's the actions of the apostles. Then read the book of James, just a short little book in the New Testament. tells what a Christian ought to look like. And then I would say read the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. I think after that you'll be hooked. But that's my suggestion to you. Those four books will at least get you started. Now, here's another tool that God uses to chip away those things that are not Jesus in us. People. God often puts people into our lives who can smooth out the rough edges. Right? They challenge us when we're out of line. They encourage us when we're weak. They confront us when we're wrong. This is one of the beauties of marriage, truthfully. Having a husband or wife who really does have our best interest in mind that can inspire us to become what we might never be on our own. My wife, Gail, has such a soft heart and such a gentle spirit. She is not a hammer and chisel kind of person at all. More like a polishing cloth. It can restore luster to the most stubborn piece of metal, namely me. But other people in my life, and probably in yours, are more confrontational than that. The Old Testament book of Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need that kind of interaction, that kind of accountability from peers in our lives. Still further, we benefit from making sure that there are people in our lives that we can look up to, Christians who model for us a Christ-like example. I mean, it's great to read in the Bible what Jesus was like, but when somebody that you know comes alongside you and you see Jesus in them, that can be incredibly powerful. It's why we need to be hanging around with people who are a little farther down the road than we are spiritually. We don't need to idolize them, but we all need role models. We need people that we can look at to help us grow and deepen in our faith. It's why we need to be Jesus to those who aren't quite as far along as we are. I even believe that God can bring crude and immoral people into our lives to help us conform to the image of Christ. I mean, face it, the best way to learn patience is to have your patience tested, and we all know people who push our buttons. The best way to learn compassion is to interact with somebody who's hard to love. We're often motivated toward integrity by the frustration we experience dealing with people who lack integrity. God uses people to chip away everything in us that's not Jesus. Now, another tool is circumstances. 
Right? Ken Geyer said, God uses the circumstances of our lives, however confusing, to conform us to the image of His Son. God uses circumstances even when they don't make sense. And I don't know what your last couple of years have been like, but the past couple of years have been one big confusing mess for Gail and me. Now, does that mean that God's not been in it? Has God, has God gone AWOL, you know, we just need to pack up and go home because he's, he's gone? Of course not. Do you remember what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I love the New International Version translation of the Bible, but I'm not a big fan of how it translates this verse. It says, in all things, God works for good, and that's true. There's an important word that I think is missing in this translation. It's the word together. Several of the other translations say, God works all things together for good. God promises that he will work everything together for good. The good, the bad, the ugly, he can use all of it and work it out, and good can be the result. God can use anything, any circumstance, even pain and suffering can be tools to shape us into who he wants us to be. See, sometimes people try to make Romans 8.28 say that God makes everything good in our lives. Not necessarily. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world, he said. Not everything is going to be good in your life as we define good as we see good. But God works all things together for good. He can even take the trouble and use it to make us more like Jesus. I was in a debate one day with somebody, and if you had been there, you might say we were arguing. I prefer to say we were having a debate. But anyway, this person quoted from the book of James in the New Testament, only good and perfect gifts come down from heaven, they said. But is that what James said? Actually, James 1.17 says all good and perfect gifts come down from heaven. But it doesn't say only. There is no promise that God will never allow things in our lives that are painful, that are hard, that are imperfect. Ken Geyer said it well. He said, suffering has a voice in our lives, but though it has a voice, it does not have the last word. God always has the last word. Think again about sculpting. A good sculptor uses a hammer and chisel. Now, it's not comfortable. We saw that in the video, right? But a sculptor does not use a sledgehammer, right? He doesn't blow us up with dynamite. He uses tools to form us. There's a, a line from... Okay, there we go. Michelangelo said, the more the marble wastes, the more the statue grows. You have to be reduced to perfection. Day in and day out, year in and year out, it is a lifelong process. It's not an immediate thing. Right? Transformation takes a long time. He uses, God uses people, the Bible circumstances, but he also uses failure. Now, I don't know about you, but this is good news for me. Because failure is just a big part of life. I read one time about a young guy who was talking to a retired businessman, and he said, what's the key to success? And the older guy said, right decisions. He said, well, how do you learn to make right decisions? He said, experience. Well, how do you get experience? He said, wrong decisions. 
And man, that's life, isn't it? God often uses our failures to make us better. Failure is not fun, it's not desirable, but it's also not final. During his lifetime, Michelangelo attempted 44 statues. He only finished 14 of them. Now, why do you suppose he left so many incomplete? When I first read those numbers, I thought maybe he died young, but the guy lived to be 89. He was no spring chicken when he died. Maybe a demanding schedule, you know, kept him from finishing them. Maybe he was just so busy. Maybe there were defects in the marble that he didn't see at first, and he reached a point where he just couldn't fix it. Maybe there was just disappointment, you know? It just wasn't turning out like he had hoped. I don't know why. Maybe it was a combination of all those things, but he only finished a third of the statues that he started. See, failure is a part of every life. Sometimes when I mess up and get frustrated, Gail will say, you know, welcome to the human race. Not terribly comforting, but it's true. Right? It's a part of who we are. Listen, if you never fail, you're probably not trying anything very big. If you never fail, you're not trying anything big enough. You are robbing yourself of opportunities to learn and to grow and to stretch and to depend upon God like never before. Failure is a part of life, but sometimes. Sometimes failure is not about a poor business decision or a missed free throw or a bad test score or forgetting the lyrics to the national anthem in front of thousands of people. Sometimes failure comes because of disobedience. Sometimes failure is not clumsiness, it's rebellion against God. Rick Stedman is a pastor from California, and his church is a church that takes communion every Sunday. We offer it here each week, but, but they kind of take it as a, as a collective group. And, and a woman asked him one time why they took communion so often. And Rick was going to say, because Christians sin a lot, we need a constant reminder of Christ's sacrifice, the price that he paid for our redemption. He was going to say that, but as he started to say it, he decided he would make it more personal. So instead of saying, because Christians sin a lot, they need that reminder, he said, because I sin a lot, I need that constant reminder of redemption. And so the next Sunday, Rick overheard the same woman saying to a friend, we take communion every week here because Pastor Rick sins so much. <laughs> Man, I can relate to that, can't you? I don't know how messed up you are, but I know how messed up I am. And I need communion. I need this reminder of grace that we offer here because I'm a wreck. And I'm guessing maybe some of you are too. God can use even our sinful nature, the guilt that comes with that, to make us better. The guilt drives us to our knees. It motivates us to want to change. I read a prayer by a man named Paul David Tripp. He wrote it in his book, Whiter Than Snow. And I want to read part of this prayer to you. I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes for a moment and let this be a prayer. Let me just share with you what he wrote. In the pain of my confession, O God, it's hard to recollect the fleeting pleasures of my sin. My shame hides your face. My anguish drowns out your voice. The lingering visions of what I've done haunt my soul and assault my heart and dominate my thoughts. I want to undo what I've done. I want to turn back time so that my thoughts would be pure and my hands would be clean, but I cannot undo what dark pleasure has wrought. And so I come to you just as I am. I bow before you shamed and unclean. The searching light of your righteousness puts fear in my heart and reveals more stains than I ever thought I had. I bow before you because I have nowhere else to go. 
I confess to you because I have no other hope. There is no place to run. There is no place to hide. I cannot escape what I have done. I cannot erase my stains. And so in my grief, I ask for one thing. I long for your healing touch. I long to see you rejoice over me. For when I have repented and I'm blessed by your gladness and the angels celebrate, then I can be sure that I have been given the greatest of gifts, the miracle of miracles, the thing that only love could purchase, forgiveness. Amen. Remember what it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, I talk to a lot of people and I think we often go to one of two extremes when it comes to guilt and sin. Some people downplay their sin and act like it's no big deal. I'm okay, you're okay, isn't grace wonderful? But I think other people, many people, swing the pendulum to the opposite direction and they live their lives under this cloud of guilt and shame and regret. In another one of Ken Geyer's books, he said that guilt says, I screwed up, but shame says, I'm a screw-up. God uses guilt to lead us to repentance, but Satan uses shame to lead us to despair. It's okay to be guilty when it drives you to the Lord, but shame, that was nailed to the cross. We all screw up. The Bible's very clear about that, but you are not a screw-up. God is not mad at you. God is not ashamed of you. You are his masterpiece. Man, he's not sick of you. He loves you. And because he loves you, he is not content to leave you the way you are. And me, he chips away at us everything that's not Jesus. And it is a lifelong process. And it's tough. And it hurts sometimes. But he wants to reduce you to perfection. And so he uses his word. And he uses other people. And he uses circumstances, hard as they may be. And he uses failure, as uncomfortable as they are. Because he wants to see Jesus in us. More than anything else. Now I'm about done. But I want to tell you one last thing that I think is really important. I love the analogy of God sculpting us. I like art, and I just think it's a, it's a cool picture of you know, Michelangelo carving the pieta, beautiful. But there is a flaw in the sculpting analogy. There's a breakdown in the imagery. You know what it is? Marble is passive. The sculptor exerts all the influence. Now, the marble may prove to be hard to work with. There could be a flaw somewhere in there or something. But, but listen, marble is never willfully defiant. Okay, against the artist. The stone does not say, I'm just not in the mood to be carved today. I think I'll stay in bed. It just doesn't work that way. The artist maintains full control. But by very definition, we, on the other hand, are not passive creatures. God gave us a free will. And so we have to decide to submit to his touch. And we can refuse. Again, C.S. Lewis said, there will be two kinds of people at the end of time. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. Your choice. We choose to submit. We choose to defy. He will not force himself on us. He offers to transform us, but he doesn't hide in the bushes and pounce. 
And so the question is, are you willing to let the sculptor work in your life? Or do we stubbornly resist what God wants to do? He has his tools, he's eager to use them, but we have to decide. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. We are God's masterpiece. He reduces us to perfection. He chips away everything in us that's not Jesus. 